Welcome to the show, everybody. This is part one of two of these episodes because this is such a fantastic guest. You guys are going to have a great time as I did having the conversation. Coming up, I've been adding some dates for the summer. Summertime is a real tricky time for comedy. Everyone's, a lot of people don't know this. The weather's nice, so people don't want to be indoors as much. It's school's out, it's family time, people are doing weddings, it's all this conflicting with comedy shows. A lot of comedy clubs cut down their schedule and and, uh, lose like a a show or two uh, a week, and it can be a little bit difficult out there, but I want to try it, see how stand-up science does. Um, maybe it will do better than regular comedy shows during the summer. I don't know unless I try, but I would very much appreciate the support in spreading the word. First and foremost, I have Saturday, June 1st, coming right up in Cincinnati. Also, uh, I'll, I'll be, if you follow me on Twitter and Facebook, um, I'll be announcing, I'll be doing a regular stand-up show in Cincinnati as well uh, later on that following week. But stand-up science will be June 1st, and then I have uh, Cedar Falls, uh, this is for the end of June, Cedar Falls, Iowa, Des Moines, Iowa, Wichita, um, Tulsa uh, coming up in July, and then I'm working on some stuff in like outside Oklahoma City, maybe Fayetteville, maybe Kansas City. Omaha is confirmed, maybe Milwaukee. Looking on more stuff around the Midwest at that time before heading to the UK. Going to be posting some of those dates soon and working on more uh, stuff overseas for August. And then in the fall, I, I have some fun like festivals and stuff um, coming up for in Seattle. I'm doing Bumbershoot. I'm doing in Atlanta, the Red Clay Comedy Fest. And I'm doing a neuroscience symposium in Ann Arbor, Michigan in September as well. And I'm trying to plan out my fall uh, working on this living on the road situation, trying to line up everything so I can stay out there on the road and just drive from city to city. And uh, it should be a way of keeping my costs down and exploring things a bit more. Maybe maybe doing more Here We Are podcasts and more regular stand-up along the way. I'm very excited about it. And, and so, always, thanks for helping spread the word and support. It's always nice meeting you guys at the shows. The listeners of this podcast are such wonderful, awesome people. And uh, some of you guys have been writing and giving me some suggestions for venues. And I've been forwarding them along to my management and assistant. And we're working on that. So those are really helpful. If you if you know of venues, looking for around 100 to 200 seat venues. People are always asking me when I'm going to bring stand-up science to their area. Um, if you happen to know a venue in your area that would be a good fit for a half comedy, half science show, uh, like a small, like theater, like movie seating type thing that sometimes happens in uh, in some cities, like old movie theaters, 
that are now repurposed um, breweries with a second room for a showroom. There's some indie music clubs that are good. I do comedy clubs sometimes um, as well on off nights. The trouble with that is I don't want people expecting a pure 100% comedy show. I don't want people showing up by accident and not knowing what the show is. So I definitely look for more um, alternative or indie type venues. So you're always welcome to write the show. uh, And that is much appreciated. Uh, You can go to the here we are podcast.com website to contact me there and i appreciate all the support you guys are we yes where are we here why are we here not entirely clear we are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all it's immensely bizarre here we are Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. Today, I'm talking with Professor of Psychology and Neuroscience at UC Davis and the director of the Memory and Plasticity Program, Charan Ragnarath. As oh, you're so close, Char. I'm so, I'm not. I'm keeping that. That was fun, Charan <laughs> Ragnarath. Okay, I almost said Ragnarok. That's what I was. Have you ever gotten that? Before? It's like four or something. I think that's a. Uh, it's like Thor like a, Rangarok or something oh, yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. For a while, I was thinking it was a Muppet thing, but you know, no, I get this Thor different... vibe that I'm. Kind of uh, oh like, yeah, people maybe, say that a lot. Maybe, maybe that's what it is. It's I'm like, confusing you. People with, confuse uh, me with like uh, a blonde horse god. Yeah, you know? yeah. I think that was part of the confusion. So, uh, Charan, can you first set up? Here's how I picture doing this. This isn't the most structured show in the world, but going into this, I have. So I want I want people to know a little bit of, uh, about you and your background. And then I have, we're going to be talking a lot about memory today. I had a memory thing happen to me recently that okay. I thought was really interesting that I want to share with you. You may have a little to say about it. You might have a lot to say about it and then get more in depth into your work from there. So, so that's... That's my my loose structure that I have in my head that is probably probably didn't even need to explain that to people. Probably could have just gone right into it and it would have been <laughs> that much more genuine. But but that's what, what's done is oh, done. This is good. I'm preparing for it now. <laughs> so give people a little bit of background on yourself. Okay. How deep do you want me to dive oh, in? Oh, all the way. All right. so, so you came out of the womb and then the doctor <laughs> got you. They held you upside down. You're crying. That's good. And then you developed over yeah over, through childhood when did you first get interested in were you were you interested in science early on in life uh no um actually this is the Me last either. thing i would have thought yeah right Me too. I mean, <laughs> how are we here right now this it's is nothing crazy. like the education system to get you disinterested in science I, right? it really is uh well I, I think maybe once you hit college which i didn't do i became a comedian oh really but uh yeah yeah I think that once you hit college, you actually have an opportunity to learn a little bit on your own terms and yeah. whatnot. But boy, I did not like school growing up. Yeah, I think I was the same way. I was always good at school, but it's hard for people to understand this now because it's like we live in this world where people, kids are nice to each other. They don't bully each other and all this Isn't, stuff. It, that's it's, like what's happening now, I know, right? which is great. I don't have kids, so I don't know, yeah. but I, there's like all this interesting like... 
there now there's like microaggressions and like passive aggressiveness (laughs) that people are worried about not to say that isn't a serious threat but you know it's passive aggressiveness is a different level than just your run-of-the-mill aggressiveness which is what i remember yeah i just remember aggressive yeah it's like okay i guess passive aggressive would be people if just just using racial slurs against you or something like right not not even oh yeah maybe back then now now passive aggressive is like if you uh are like um nice job on that term paper like you you say something like a backhanded or sarcastic or something like that now that's the big threat that the kids are dealing with these days yeah yeah that's right no i mean you know where i grew up it was like you know there was bullying there was like you know uh i was one of like the only like you know it's hard to believe because i grew up in san jose but there weren't a lot of asians even at the time in my neighborhood let alone like, you know, so it was, uh, it was rough, you know, and, um, and the worst part was being good at school because that really made you an outcast, you know? Yeah. And so it was, you know, and I got into my share of fights and, you know, but I, cool. yeah, well, not so cool. I didn't say I won those fights, Shane. I just said that I got into them, you know? And so, you know, you kind of, I, I kind of, uh, I guess probably I always had kind of a rebellious streak. And Me so too. like when I got into uh, high school, I got into metal and punk rock. And, uh, you know, that's when I started playing guitar. I used to play the trumpet before that. And I was um, a trombone player. I never. I love trombone. I never. <laughs> if that proves that I had trombone experience, I think that it does. I yeah. mean, not just anyone can replicate a. Yeah. Um, but uh, you, I, I never graduated to a cool instrument. You still play guitar. Yeah. 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 So I play in a couple of original bands and then I also play in a. Plug them. All right. Okay. Yeah. So uh, one of them is brand new and doesn't have a name yet. The other one has oh, a name. I like, but we're that'd a... be a great name for a band, by the way. <laughs> brand new and doesn't have a name. Yeah. Maybe I'll pitch that to them. We've been, <laughs> we're having, one of the hardest things about being in a band is coming with, up with a name. Actually. Really? Yeah. Because it's like, it's really hard to get people to agree on a name that doesn't uh, suck. Yeah. I mean, it's hard. I've, I've had to name albums and shows of mine. It's mm-hmm. not my favorite part of the process coming up with names. I yeah. Move a document or name a, uh, documentary recently and stuff and i don't i don't care for that yeah 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 and it's like it's one thing for us to name songs or records it's another to name this is who we are you know and so um uh so that's been hard but we have i have one band we're in the process of changing our name but we're called here knows when and the reason why it's, uh, we're changing our names is because it's hard for people to remember. But being a memory researcher, that's what I study. So, um, but we have a Bandcamp page. It's here knows when. So H E R E K N O W S W H E N, Bandcamp.com. And we have a Facebook page. So like us and check out the music. It's free actually, because uh, I'm not going to make any money off that. So people might as well be able to download the song. So yeah. So. So, so people were, you're, you're called here knows when, and, and the trouble was people were like, here, H E A R S, and hearing knows like on your face, and then when for something, there's also. No, it's more like who knows what? Oh, he knows who? Oh, yeah. I see, I see. Yeah. Okay. So the currently 
uh, named, but soon to be formally named band here knows when. That's right. That's okay. right. Yeah. And that's actually three UC Davis psychology professors, me and two other people. And, uh, so that's been a fun project. There's a lot of, you probably noticed there's a lot of people in science who do music and I think it's, uh, I, it's not something that's stuck out to me actually, but yeah, I guess I'll, I, there, I've had some musicians on. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think this is kind of part of, the mentality that got me into music, uh, got me into science too. So I was kind of telling, so, oh, and I played another band, which I'll plug a little bit. It's Pavlov's Dogs, which is a group of neuroscientists that we get together at conferences and we play covers. So that's, the other stuff is all original music, but the um, Pavlov's Dogs is a cover band. And so we do what I call hipster dad rock, like the kind of stuff like, you know, that you might have listened to the 80s or something like that, like uh, could be like Rolling Stones or it could be like Iggy Pop and the Stooges or, you know, things like that. The Clash. All right. Ramones. So, um, yeah, so that's that's the other project. All right. I love it. And so uh, so then how would you get into how did this rebellion and <laughs> you into uh, science? That That's not the, I mean, that's not already not the most. Not the backstory you imagine when you're like, how'd you get into science? And yeah. somebody's like, well, I was always a badass rebel. So, <laughs> so I don't think if you ask my high school, the people I knew in high school, they would have described me as a badass rebel. Though. But, uh, um, but nonetheless, I did have that streak in me. And uh-huh. so, um, uh, but you know, where I, you know, my family, it was like, you basically become a doctor or an engineer and people knew I wasn't becoming a doctor. So I was supposed to become an engineer. And so I majored in electrical engineering and computer science at Berkeley. And up till that point, I had never had any problems at school. I could just kind of go in and take tests and, you know, act like, I oh, I just studied this the night before. And, you know, it was no big deal. And then I got my ass kicked in these classes at Berkeley. And uh, all of a sudden, I started to ask myself why. I would look at the page over and over again, and I just couldn't get anywhere. And I realized I just didn't like it. You know, I just didn't, it wasn't what I was into. So I uh, left the College of Engineering and, you know, did what a lot of people end up doing when they don't know what to do with their lives. I became a psychology major. (laughs) Um, But what was kind of interesting about it was that I started, you know, uh, one of the things that I think was really influential for me was uh, I took a class from Danny Kahneman, who won the Nobel Prize for his yeah. work on decision making. Yeah, and of course. that was just a phenomenal experience, both taking his class, but also reading about his stuff before I did. Because, you know, one of the things that he showed was that people aren't rational. Right. Thinking and, Fast and Slow, one of the greatest science books of all time. Yeah, yeah. And he was just such a smart guy, you know. And uh, But that idea that people aren't rational really stuck with me because I never got people up to that point. And so that idea that, hey, it's okay because people aren't supposed to make sense really right. stuck with me. And I started working in labs. And one of the interesting things about working in labs was we it wasn't like memorizing facts, which is how science is often taught. It was like asking questions and trying to find answers as opposed to just memorizing answers, you know. And that really appealed to me, too. So, like, I was really... Uh, you know, I came from, you know, I'd been really into punk rock and 
the DIY mentality. And science is a lot like that. You know, you actually do, do better when you find things that you care about and you have to figure out how to solve the problem. It's not like we are you know, basically kind of memorizing answers. It's like we're creating problems, you know, <laughs> that's how much more punk rock can you get than that, you know? So, um, and uh, so that's kind of, but I ended up actually kind of in clinical psychology. And so in clinical psychology, I, because I thought that was the only career you could really have in psychology. And so I studied people, or I mean, one of the things that you train in in clinical psychology is neuropsych, where you're testing people who have brain damage, and you're kind of trying to identify what's wrong with this person. And one of the things that struck me was we were using these tests that were developed in like the 1950s sometimes, and we're doing our best. But, you know, at the time, brain imaging was just starting to become big. And I said to myself, well, wouldn't it be cool if we could take what's being done in neuroscience like right now and take it to actually understand what's going on with people in the clinic? And so research-wise, I started to get into this idea of memory. And it just so happened that my advisor, I was doing depression research before, and my advisor had left, uh, he got a job at Stanford. And so I was in this position where I had to find a new advisor and there was a new professor named Ken Paller who, um, he's now famous actually for his work on sleep and memory. Um, but he had just started there. And so I kind of camped out in his lab basically until he took me in. And that got me started in memory research. And I did actually finish all my clinical training, but at some point I just said, I like the culture of being in a lab more than I like the culture of being in a clinic. I mean, I actually love dealing with patients and stuff, but I really like this idea of I can wear my t-shirts into the lab and, you know, I, and the other part of it that's really cool is I have friends all over the world, you know, so I can, you know, uh, give a talk in London or something and hang out with someone that I know there, you know, and that, and we have this common interest, you know, so I mean, there's actually, like I said, a lot of parallels between music and uh, um, and science. It's like, you know, in music, you play shows and you live for that. In science, you give talks, uh, you record an album, you write papers. Uh, uh, kind of in both things, there's a little bit of networking involved, a little schmoozing involved in order to really kind of make it, you know. Um, I mean, I suppose comedy is actually pretty similar too, but yeah, I I got into science through a through like kind of a rebellious way myself, which you know when I started in comedy, much of it was just like early on figuring out okay what what makes a joke work, what makes like for a good joke structure, or what makes for good timing, good delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, word choice, like fig- yeah. figuring out all of these different contributing factors to just getting a laugh. That's uh, that's the 101. Yeah. Let's figure out how to get a laugh here. Yep. Uh, any means necessary. And then after that, it was, um, and I was, you know, in my, uh, mid twenties at the time. And it was, it was much about like kind of, trying to push boundaries a little bit early on and and i was a younger man then too so i i had just like far more sex jokes back then than <laughs> it, you write what you know or are not know are obsessing about i would say and then i i had all of these it, you know for a while i was kind of like i i could i could talk about these 
edgier topics in a way that with like my ah shucks midwestern delivery that allowed me to get away with with things and and then I just got bored with like trying to push the boundaries of like okay can I make this abortion joke work or whatever whatever (laughs) social taboo whatever graphic sex thing like it started getting boring to me to just like be as outrageous as possible or whatever and I wanted to be talking about like really how life worked and what was more meaningful and to me there was nothing more edgy or uh, or challenging or kind of dangerous than like actually figuring out these underlying properties that drive people's behavior and and trying to communicate things like science which i've got really into on stage when people like don't necessarily they're not coming there to learn Mm -hmm. um like it is it's it's a much more nerve-wracking experience trying to talk about say biology in a club where people like worked hard all week (laughs) and want to like get drunk and have some laughs about dicks and (laughs) don't want to hear of course there's plenty of biology dick jokes so you can make it work but uh but i kind of like it was drawn to science through my like natural sense of rebellion um as well so so look at us a couple of badasses (laughs) (laughs) recording this badass podcast so i I my wife will to... be so impressed by this. <laughs> we, but for the listeners, we are both like wearing leather jackets right now with like <laughs> spikes and stuff all over. Enjoy basketball, soccer, and all your favorite sports like never before at BetMGM. Sign up using bonus code CHAMPION and your first wager is risk-free up to $1,000. Plus, when you register with BetMGM, you'll get instant access to a variety of parlay selection features, live betting options, player props, and daily boosted odds specials. Download the BetMGM app today or go to BetMGM.com and enter bonus code CHAMPION and place your first wager risk-free up to $1,000. Now you're winning with the king of sportsbooks. Visit betmgm.com for terms and conditions. 21 years of age or older to wager. Washington, D.C. and Virginia only. New customer offer. All promotions are subject to qualification and eligibility requirements. Rewards issued as non-withdrawable free bets or site credit. Free bets expire seven days from issuance. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-522-4700. So I had this very like run of the mill kind of life experience recently that is it'll probably sound like a boring story because it's it's something that that everyone's experienced but I I just noticed I was just a little more mindful at this m- moment and I just had some insights about memory during this where I was like how in the world is the brain doing this so here's what happened this is back in december months ago still remember it thanks memory um and i i go to this yoga class i go there do yoga leave get back to i was staying at my brother's place in milwaukee at the time and i get back and then uh later on you know i didn't think much of any of this went did yoga left came back and I was in this new yoga place I'd never went to before. I was hanging out in bed. I go to check my pockets, and I'm like, oh, my wallet's missing. 
where's my wallet? And so I go out to look and, and as soon as I'm like, where's my wallet? My brain just starts flashing all of these pictures of like where I've been recently. Like here, is it in your car? Did you leave it at the, the yoga place? And I'm, I go to my car and I'm looking for it and I'm, and I'm seeing. And so what struck me was like, was that my brain isn't just go rewinding all the way back to in time to in noticing every little aspect of everything that I've done. It is selecting these little slices of time and these little details in providing these clues toward this goal. And I'm picturing myself, so I, I wasn't so much remembering the yoga class itself was afterwards as I, I, I was like, oh, I remember I took my wallet out to pay for the class afterwards. I uh, uh, Did I leave it on the desk? I'm remembering what the desk looked like. This is all like, what, what was striking to me was this is all just completely useless information. As far, as far as I knew, I was never going to be at this yoga studio ever again in my life. My brain didn't like objectively have a quote-unquote reason to remember any of these details about any of this. And then and I'm and then I'm looking in my car and I was about to give up and then I just had this flash of this memory of me afterwards putting my jogging pants on and feeling my wallet in my jogging pants and then I was like oh I was wearing my jogging pants I have a looser pocket I bet it fell um, between the seat and then that's where it was and I found my wallet. Now that's a whole long, everyone's experienced something like this. Yeah. But my question is how in the world is the brain doing this? How is it feeding this conscious, this, this story into your consciousness of like, it's like these odd, interesting detective clues that are relevant. It's not giving you all of the information from the day. It is selectively picking and choosing the relevant things and how was that information there to be drawn from in the first place? This isn't like when I when I go you go and have someone in a lab and you're like, here's a grocery list that I'm gonna have you memorize and you need to actively try to remember this list of groceries. This was as far as I knew, I was never going to have to remember anything about this yoga class. Remembered it anyway. And then is like is there a part of my brain that right now still contains every detail of what happened in there that I just don't have access to and what and what consciousness is about is is about tapping into and providing this story of the relevant information that's necessary what in the world is going uh, is going on there do you have some comments on that can you walk me through a little bit of that I have the exact answer to those questions no I don't that'd be, <laughs> oh, <laughs> that'd be total bullshit so uh no I mean the questions you're asking are are really at the heart of what we're trying to do, though. I mean, those are really good questions. I mean, there's a hundred questions you ask. So, right. So, uh, but so I many, mean, uh, and you have the next forty minutes. Yeah. The, the stage is yours. All right. Sounds good. Uh, no dick jokes. Though. <laughs> oh shoot. But uh, well, I was tempted when you talked about the wallet in your pocket, but. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, well, we should probably edit that out. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fine. But anyway, um, uh, yeah. So, I mean, what you're talking about is 
a great example of what we call episodic memory. You know, so this is episodic memory in action. So episodic memory is your ability to remember events. And so a big part of, you know, kind of the dialogue and memory research is just what are you talking about in the first place? What is it that you're studying? What, what do we think we're dealing with? And so there's different ways people talk about memory. Some people say that there's different systems for different kinds of memory. And I like to think of the fact that, you know, you have the brain basically taking in information and everything that's happening in this conversation in real time. You're seeing things, you're hearing things, maybe smelling things, and that's all being split up and processed by separate parts of your brain, right? Now, it's not to say that every brain region is an island. It's like networks, right? But they're all taking the information that you have and pulling it all apart. And so you can think of any given brain network as having its own kind of memory, but that memory is sorted in a particular way. So let's say you have like a bunch of files in your computer, right? Like let's say you have all your podcasts and you could sort your podcasts by subject. And so you could put, you know, biology podcasts in one folder, or psychology podcasts in another folder, or you could sort it by the name of the person, right? Or you could sort it by the date that it happened. And if depending on how you sort those files, it'll make it easier to get some files and harder to get other ones, right? In other words, some files will be close together and lumped and some files will be pulled apart and split, right? And so that is kind of a way I think about how memory is organized. And so you have knowledge about the world, which we call semantic memory. And that knowledge you can think of as being organized in a particular way. So for instance, if I have knowledge about microphones, right? I have, you know, from, uh, I'm not like a recording expert, but we've spent some time in the studio and I bought a couple of microphones for our work. And so I have some expertise in that, right? And so I want to be able to lump together the information maybe based on the functions of these things, but split up, you know, aggregate across different times I've had a microphone and just give you some kind of an opinion about this brand of microphone in general, right? So you want to lump across time, but you want to split according to, let's say, the item information or the objects, right? Now, on the other hand, in the example that you gave, you really want to file your memories by time and lump across different kinds of things, right? So you had the that whole story, you had the yoga, you had the jogging pants, you had the car, the wallet. If you think about it, those are entirely different concepts, right? There's nothing arbitrarily, you don't think of yoga and wallets as being related to each other. Maybe you do if you, I don't do enough yoga classes, but if a friend if you're yoga, in a, if you, st- if you own a yoga business, yeah. you, you think of yoga and wallets next to each other. That's right. That's you're always it. sort of sticking it somewhere <laughs> before you do your thing. But, but in general, those are not, you know, it's not the first thing that comes to mind when you think of yoga, sure. right? The reason why they were lumped together is somehow your brain said, this all happened in the same window of time. Mm-hmm. And it kept that memory different from other memories at the yoga studio, right? So in other words, that memory is filed according to the coincidence of all of these different things that happen at the same time. Mm. And so those things are associated, but it's separated from other events that could have involved the same yoga studio, other events that could have involved you getting in your car and blah, 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 but they happen at different times. So we call that context, essentially. As we're talking right now, I just had some images in my mind's eye of my 
where where I was in the class. I was in the front right corner of the class. Uh, what the yoga teacher looked like, and then you mentioned where the car was, and I just pictured where I had parked that day because I was worried about getting a parking ticket. I remembered all that, and I didn't consciously remember any of that until we just started talking about it now. So it's also unlocking... New, uh, like other other things as we're talking about it. Yeah, no, I mean, this is actually, you know, so I talked a little bit with you about this before we started recording, but um, the scientist Endel Tolving, who came up with the term episodic memory, he talks about it as mental time travel. And there's definitely a good science to back that up in the sense that if you recall something that happened, let's say, you know, last week during a podcast interview or one of your stand-up science shows or something, you will Thanks find for it. plug in stand up science, by the way. Love it. Love it. <laughs> maybe some maybe if I do well on this, you'll actually put me on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so so you know, if you remember one of those episodes, right? Yeah. You will find it easier to remember things that happened around that time. So it's like as if your mind goes back to that time, like it's traveled into the past. And now all these things that seemed like they weren't in your consciousness just become suddenly accessible to you, right? Just like if you went to the folder that said, you know, if you stored your podcast by folder and you went back to June 10th, 2018, you'd find, you know, that one, but you'd also find June 11th's folder right next to it, right? Mm. And so, in, in you, you'd see, there's it's kind of like those old detective movies, like the Agatha Christie stuff, where they reenact the scene of the crime, and so all of a sudden people remember all those things that they didn't have before. And the reason is, is that place and time have a very important function gluing things together in episodic memory. Mm. And so when you reinstate that context, we've, we've actually seen that you even reactivate, like, so let's say if I showed people a picture of an object or something like that, we can find that when people recall that object, they reactivate not only a mental representation of that thing they studied, but also mental representations of things that happened right before, right after. Mm. And so what that's telling us is, again, when people are remembering, they're not remembering a thing they're remembering a chunk of experiences that happen in a particular time and place and situation. Hmm. And that's kind of how our memories are organized. And that's why we think you can replay it. But you, you said something else, which was like spot on, which is that it's also like detective work. When you're actually searching for a memory, you have a reason for searching for it, right? And you have a strategy for how you're going to go about doing this. And to some extent, things pop up in your head, like, in your story, you had a perfect example of things just coming up into your consciousness. And in real time, your brain's trying to put that together into a story and say, well, given all the stuff that's popping up, how do I make sense of this, right? And so part of how we make sense of it is we have this kind of organized knowledge, which we call schemas. And so, for instance, you have a schema uh, for events that can happen in a yoga class. And so that's going to bias you to sort of plug in and fill in the gaps between what you actually reactivated and say, okay, well, given that I was coming from the yoga studio, I always drive to the yoga studio. So I probably was going back to my car afterwards, you know, something like that. Right. And so you start to make these little inferences and fill in the blanks with things. And so that's a big part of it too. And that's part of the detective work that we do. And so you'll actually see people with brain damage, um, like damage to the prefrontal cortex, uh, for instance, like if you had a head injury or aneurysm, you can see this. 
where the patients will um, often reactivate information that happens in the past, but the story they make up is all wrong. And and that's called confabulation. And it's not like they're lying. It's not like they're trying to put one over on you. It's that they get the information, they get some of the details, but the story just gets messed up because they're not pulling together the right context to make sense of it, you know? And people actually, healthy people do this too. I mean, there's actually, this is where a lot of memories can become distorted from each other, right? So uh, sometimes there, you know, there's many, many cases, for instance, where people have been questioned over and over about a crime and the questions have all of this leading information. Yeah. And so people start to confuse what happened in the past with the thing, the information that was in the question. And so that's what you call a source confusion. That's the fancy term for it. But basically what it means is you get mixed up. And so people start to put together things that happened in the wrong way as a result. I mean, there's a very famous case, actually, that um, uh, memory researchers talk about where uh, an actual memory researcher was accused of a sexual assault by um, by the victim. And he had the perfect alibi, which is that he was actually on TV at the time of the attack. And so it just so happened that she had the TV episode on at the time. And so she wasn't miss she wasn't like she remembered something but the story was wrong you know and when i say this i don't want to mean that you know there's actually great evidence that when people undergo traumatic events they can remember a lot of things correctly and so it's you know actually i've seen you know i uh did an interview about the christine blasey ford case uh when kavanaugh was going up for the supreme court hearings and in that uh in that uh, instance, she was talking about something that happened in the past and it was a traumatic event, but she knew the guy and she remembered a lot of vivid detail. But one of the things that she wasn't remembering were exactly the things that you shouldn't remember. So people tend to think if you have an emotional event, you remember everything better. It's just like you've sort of frozen it in your mind, like a photograph or a video or something. That's not how it works. What really happens is you really get an enhancement of memory for kind of the important things that happened. And a lot of the stuff that's unrelated to why it was significant is not as magnified, right? So it's like, you know, if I like punched you in the face, you will really remember that, but you won't necessarily remember what kind of backpack I have in the corner of the room or something like that, because it's not the thing that you want to magnify, right? So our memories are really adaptive in that way. Um, But you know, so I think part of so on the one hand, our memories can be really accurate, but on the other hand, they can also be really corrupted. And it just depends on, you know, one of the things that we know is that when people reactivate a memory, all sorts of things can happen. So you remember a past event like this yoga thing, and theoretically, you know, I could trick you and start to say, well, you remember that event? Do you remember like we were there together at the yoga studio and you remember how like I was asking you if you uh, had some cigarettes on you and you said, no, no, I don't. And you'd say, I don't remember that. But then later on, you might incorporate that into your memory, right? right? So the memory can be changed. You could also recall that event and maybe get distracted by something and you might find that memory to be less successful or might be lost later on. You could also strengthen the memory. So in a lot of our research, what we do is we use uh, ask people to remember past events, and what we find is is that act of recalling something strengthens memory for not only what they recalled, but also things that happened around it in time. 
And what's really cool about this effect is, is that let's say if I ask you about, you know, dinner last night, you kind of recall it, just take a moment to recall it. What you'll find is, is that immediately, let's say, you know, an hour from now, I ask you, tell me again about that dinner stuff. You'll remember it. Okay. But your ability to retain that information over time is dramatically better. So there's something that allows the brain to really lock into it and keep it from being lost. And sometimes, you know, we've even sound, found, we have some evidence that people can not only retain information better, but they can reorganize what they actually know. And, and actually after sleep, for instance, information seems to be reorganized in ways that are more meaningful and allows you to pull out structure across different experiences. Hmm. So, so you give someone a big, long grocery list of this jumbled bits of things. And, and after time of trying to remember it, people start categorizing like, well, there are four vegetables in here, four spices, um, f- four cleaning products or something like that. They weren't given to them in that order, but the brain mm-hmm. starts putting things into categories to make it this easier to access. Well, if you, I mean, that's actually really enhanced in our data. It looks like it's really enhanced if you practice recalling that information. So if you don't, you probably, it's such an arbitrary group of information, you might end up losing it. But if you do recall the list, you probably are going to say, well, I had some spices that I needed to get and here's the spices. And then I know I must have gone to the dairy section and then I got blah, blah, blah. You know, so um, we're studying this right now as to whether people change the way they recall information for memories as they get older. Because one of the things that people generally report is that as events get older and older, you don't relive them as much as they just seem like things that happen, you know, that you know it happened, but you don't necessarily have that experience of re-experiencing it. It was amazing that you had such a vivid re-experience of that yoga thing, because I never have that. <laughs> Actually, I know somebody who thinks that I have a, an autobiographical memory disorder because of those. Well, I think it's because it struck me as something interesting immediately when it happened. And then I was like, I'm going to talk about that on a podcast mm-hmm. sometimes. So then I had a, more of a purpose to hold on to it. And I think I've, I think I've talked about this maybe with a couple other people just in conversation mm-hmm. and then maybe even mention it not on this podcast, but as a guest on someone else's podcast before. So this is, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's been something that's been reinforced um, a few times, but it is, it's, well, it's exactly the example of what I was talking about. Right. Each time you recall it, now it can become kind of, you know, glued together in a way that allows you to remember it easier the next time. Of course, the other thing is, is they can also become more generic and a little less detailed, you know. So it's it's interesting how this works. You brought up another point too, which is that uh, which is that um, emotional um, or not. Um, you brought up another point, which is your motivation can really play a role in how much you retain from an event. So, for instance, if you um, are, you know, like if you are getting paid for something and, you know, your job depends on learning some information, that reward motivation will help you retain things better. And you can see that you will activate areas in the brain, for instance, that process the neurotransmitter dopamine. And that seems to be one of the, uh, um, uh, what we call a neuromodulator. It's a chemical in the brain that allows memories to stabilize so that they can be accessed later. And so, in fact, actually, 
many of these neuromodulators are released during events that are important, things that are scary or things that are rewarding or pleasurable, um, different kinds of things that your brain would say, hey, I want to hold on to that for later on, right? Yeah. And one of the things that we found, and this is this was pretty exciting work, is uh, by a postdoc of uh, former postdoc named Matthias Gruber, is that when people are curious, you get what looks like activity in these brain areas that release dopamine. So when people are curious, it's not like I'm giving you all ten. Here's ten bucks. I want you to learn the answer to this question. Right? Being curious is kind of this state of. I need to know the answer to this question. And this is probably how you got interested in science podcasting, yeah. right? And so... I mean, drugs played a role, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah. It's all dopamine. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. So, yeah. So, but I mean, uh, that's a perfect example, right? There's these... Uh, actually, drugs are kind of an interesting example because with drugs, people can have cravings, right? And curiosity is really this... It's not like pleasant in the sense that it's like this itch that you kind of want to scratch, right? And, you know, people talk about like uh, drugs as being there's a brain system that's involved in addiction that's not so much about, hey, I feel great, I'm on drugs. No. It's like, I really want drugs, you know? Yeah. Well, well my my uh, curiosity, I think, is, is more from... Uh, uh, psychedelics which are very different than your average kind of like a <laughs> cocaine or something like that psychedelics have maybe be like wait how did that just happen to my brain and i need to know more about that so well you uh, should talk to my next door neighbor because he studies the effect of psychedelics on the brain actually. oh interesting so it might be a future podcast yeah, absolutely um, um but yeah so getting back to but and i wasn't implying that you're uh you're, you're he's not doing cocaine here right now just to be clear <laughs> so uh, uh well this is you know this is the most badass podcast that I've, that I've what done goes on, on in, davis, when, when, in davis when we when we when I sort my Here We Are podcasts based on most rebellious, which is the filter <laughs> that I'm using, your episode's going to pop right up to number one. And, and people will get to see that uh, um, Charn has like all these face tattoos and stuff. It's a real, <laughs> very rebellious guy. So, anyway. I have a feeling I'm going to get so much blowback for this. Uh, blowback? What do you mean? Come on, we're being silly. Um, so, so, uh, so, so, yeah, but uh, like, so when people are in this state of curiosity, like we'll ask, we would ask them trivia questions. And what we would find is if people uh, wanted to know the answer to the question, just like you might sit in a pub quiz, right? We can see that if they're curious to find out the answer, the more curious they are, the more activity we see in this neural circuit that processes dopamine. Oh, that's why I'm so bad at trivia, because who cares? <laughs> it's right. such trivial, meaningless. Give me some concepts give me something meaty to yeah. work with that i can play around with a little bit and and integrate into my own life experiences that's what well, I don't one person's trivia though is another person's meaty oh, give me a break with your what artist wrote this album in what year i don't i don't have time for those kind of details in my life like i want i i, I yeah. want like this is the kind of curiosity i am yeah when columbus sailed the ocean blue doesn't matter to yeah. me I, I don't have time for it no i agree with you but on the other hand if i were to say did you hear about this ethiopian comedian from the 1960s and his timing was just so interesting you know 
you'd be now like, well, I have incentive to. You you'd be like, more. I should know this, but I don't. Right? There's this little gap. Okay. And any good teacher or a good journalist or a good storyteller is always going to exploit that gap. It's mm. like what you think you should know, but you don't. And mm. that's what gets people coming back in for more, right? It's kind of like, I mean, also a good comedy routine. It's like that many, I mean, I'm telling you about comedy routines, but it's like, you know, often people will be telling a story and people yeah. are trying to guess, is it this or is it that? Yeah. But they're not sure where it's going to go. That's a big thing is you want to, rookies and even professionals sometimes make this mistake is you definitely, you want to save your punchline mm-hmm. to the very end. That's sometimes right. people... Say the punchline, then have like blah, 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 a little bit of the, more to add afterwards, and that's just like structurally unsound. You want to you want to keep people dangling there. That's right, that's right. Or it's like you know you're watching you know I mean people now stream everything, but if you're watching like you know the finale of Breaking Bad or something like that, and you get to the commercial break and you're like I gotta find out what happens, you know you got that suspense in you. It's a similar kind of thing, right? Yeah. It's a it's an itch to know something, and so. Um, what we found, which was uninteresting, I mean, actually, so, you know, the people on the internet, their comments could be brutal. And so we actually had an article in the guardian, um, uh, about the study that we did. And one of the things we found was that, uh, um, uh, that people were better at remembering the answers to questions that they were curious about than ones they weren't. And so one of the commenters was like, oh, my grandmother could have told you that. <laughs> so I actually ended up writing a response. <laughs> so I got so uh, oh, you <laughs> Never got read weak. your reviews. You got weak. You don't respond to that. I know. You, you ignore those. So, um, but, but this is. But, th- but it's true. That is yeah. like, uh, that's, um, that is one of the more obvious things, right? But what was, there were two things about this that were surprising. So one is. The big dopaminergic activity we get isn't when people get the answer to the question. It's when they get the question. So it's this kind of triggering of this, I've got to seek out the answer. It's not so much like, oh, I'm really happy with this answer. It's more like it's this itch to go find the information. Well, isn't that isn't that like dopamine's much more of like a motivator than it is the reward itself, right? That's right. That's exactly right. Yeah. So that's that's the way we're thinking about it anyway. And so that's part of it. But one of the other interesting things is while people are in suspense, we find we would give people these faces and we would just say, hey, how likely is it do you think that this person would know the answer? Of course, these are just all arbitrary faces. None of them know the answer. Who knows what people are using to make those judgments? I don't care. But the interesting thing is when you're in that state of curiosity, you learn those faces better than when you're in a low, when you're not curious. Hmm. even though the faces have nothing to do with the information that they're trying to seek. So, and this has now been replicated in a few studies that when people are in a state of curiosity, things get sucked in and you do better at learning all kinds of stuff, you know? Hmm. So it's almost like as if you get this release of dopamine and then that's stabilizing things that are happening while you're on the journey to get that information, right? Hmm. It's not just the, destination it's that whole journey that's getting strengthened and so that's a big part of you know how we think daily memory works right because many cases you procrastinate on your work and so you start going hey, on a wikipedia on. 
Not you. <laughs> I'm not being literal. I'm sure you never do this. <laughs> no. I never do this. But, you know, hypothetically speaking, if a professor who studied memory were to procrastinate on <laughs> right. something, some they might person. click on some Wikipedia link and then they go on another link. And then next thing you know, you've learned a bunch of random stuff that you didn't even know about before. Mm -hmm. But that stuff kind of sticks with you. And it's because you naturally went on that quest. Nobody fed you the information. And this goes back to kind of you asked me like, why wasn't I interested in science and how did I become interested in science? And for me, you know, basically being fed answers was just a bore. But actually not knowing the answer and that itch to figure it out, that's what got me, you know. Yeah, I definitely it's it's funny not to dwell on the rebellious thing um but uh it is i mean my my mo through school was if i had say uh english homework that i had to do i would work on anything but that you know and i would still be maybe learning about something but and that that's kind of it's interesting that i you know so uh, strongly focused on, you know, comedy and dream about comedy, figuring out how to do it well and everything yeah. else. And uh, because I didn't want to get a real job and didn't want to go to school. <laughs> Same and, here. And so, and then, you know, things took off for me enough for me to make a living anyway and, and was able to do that and got comfortable. Well, then comedy became my job and yeah. then I was like now I I have to sit and write jokes and then once I have to do something yeah of course I'm less interested and then I start naturally exploring like all of these academic uh yeah things that I don't don't technically need to be learning about or researching and and uh it, yeah it's well that's actually another interesting thing that people find that there's some cases where external motivators actually can kill people's curiosity. Right. And so there could be this trade-off between, you know, if I pay you to do something, now you're less curious about it. Hmm. Um, so, which is interesting in and of itself. And so we're trying now to apply this as a, it's hard, but we're trying to figure out ways, can we work this into education? Can we work this into, you know, improving people's memory in other situations? You know, my, as you're saying all of this, it's, kind of blowing my mind a little bit because I'm I'm realizing one thing that I notice quite a bit is and I'm not sure how the arrow of causation is going here but but definitely the more curious I am about life the better mood I'm in generally or the better mood I'm in the more curious I something's going on where where when I'm because one of the things I like about this podcast is even when I don't feel like doing it, I'm still forced to and I'm forced to learn things and it keeps me educated even when I'm not necessarily even when I did wake up on the wrong side of the bed or whatever. But when I am really curious, I'm excited about a subject and I and I like maybe have a new joke I'm working on or what, what have you just life in general just seems richer it's like colors are more vibrant mm -hmm. when i'm walking around nature seems some, like something that i'm i'm more curious about i'm i'm taking in the scenery more yeah. around me the stuff uh, unrelated to what i'm uh, what i'm kind of my main focus is at yeah. that moment and then the opposite happens when i fall into like these depressions of like 
feeling like a learned helplessness kind of state yeah. and everything seems kind of gray and yeah. I'm not, I'm not, I'll still like do what I have to do, but I'm not naturally kind of yeah. terribly curious about things. And, uh, so it's, hmm, that's interesting. Cur- curiosity's influence on, on the broader, on your broader perceptions. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm. And it def. I mean, I mean, we haven't studied it, but my sense would be that it enhances people's attention. It enhances people's, uh, you know, kind of concentration. I mean, I think that it probably is one of these, you know, kind of uh, mental states that really gives you so many of the ingredients that you need for successful learning, right? And so it's no surprise that when you get a good teacher, for instance, it's like they stimulate that curiosity. And so I've started, I'm, I'm of course a great teacher, but <laughs> I'm just kidding. But it's like, if, you know, I try to start off my classes with questions yeah. like, you know, why is it that people might pay $10 million for a 30 second ad for the Super Bowl? Mm-hmm. And the answer has to do with memory, right? But now that you got this question in your head, you're like, why, why is that? You know, it's not like as if nobody knows what Budweiser is, right? I mean, everybody mm. knows what Budweiser is or Planters Peanuts or blah, blah, blah. So I should, so I record my podcast and then, you know, when I'm going to release them, I record these intros and outros and that sort of thing. And I say, uh, next week we're going to be talking about um, the evolution of kittens or something. And, and you know, that's what I usually, and people are like, I love kittens and that's how I'm going to hook them in. But I should, I should maybe, if I had already recorded, say this episode, um, and then, and then the previous one before ours comes out, I should say something like, uh, I should ask a question mm-hmm. like how, how, how does, uh, the brain recall memories and, when you're looking for your keys or something like that, something that sparks this natural curiosity and then people might be more apt to tune in mm-hmm. to, I mostly ask questions just based on my own self interest and how to better my own life. So yeah. you have to excuse me there. Um, but, uh, but some, something like that. So, uh, well, I so, mean, that's actually why most of us are doing what we're doing. We call me-search. it me-search. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. So right. you got to watch out for those people who study like behavioral inhibition. because. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and well, and, and then also what I've, what I've learned is that and what listeners have learned is that if you really if you really want these things to be reinforced and re- remember this important information, the here we are episodes that you that you really want to remember, you might want to listen to uh, two or three times to yeah. really reinforce, uh, really reinforce that memory. Is that what, uh, or I would say you should try to recall it uh, and then listen to it. See, this is one of the uh, I think advantages that I have, and why I have maybe a little higher retention than uh, another person would otherwise have is that I have to take this information and figure out how to articulate it myself on stage yeah. or I have to, I have to constantly be coming up with new, interesting, um, hopefully interesting questions and stuff like that for, for the podcast. Whereas a listener, maybe just passively listening to this to pass the time doesn't uh, need to do any of that. And isn't going to, that's why I always try to tell people like, take what you're learning on here, try to think of how to say it in your own voice and then go to a party and impress people with this yeah. <laughs> with this information, and that's how you're going to really integrate it really well and learn it better yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. 
So memory is so fascinating because there's so many factors. There's, there's, there's a lot of like biases and salience built into figuring out like what is worth remembering. You mentioned, uh, you go through the guardian, Mm -hmm. you mentioned the, the one negative, I'm sure maybe there are some other negative ones, but I'm guessing there were far more positive comments than there was negative ones. And you're remembering that one negative one. And that's the one you didn't write back. Thank you to all of the positive ones. Did you No, you, you wrote, I know I'm a comedian. I see YouTube comments. I see reviews for my documentary and other things. It's brutal. Yeah. They, they, they can be, you know, nine out of 10 positive, the one out of 10. That's even like, uh, even like just a measured balanced like three out of five review like i liked it for the most part but yep. i didn't like this one aspect of it like ah, why didn't you like that one aspect this person's an idiot you know? <laughs> um, but but that's that's the stuff that kind of triggers and and i was kind of thinking about this and and almost the exact opposite of the example i gave where where you're searching through your mind doing this detective work trying to retrieve these memories the opposite happens where memories are triggered and they're the last thing that you want to remember. Yeah. I have all sorts of negative, embarrassing memories or beating myself up, negative self-talk kind of thing that that goes through my mind all the time. People with PTSD or yeah. in this horrible situation and then like someone bumps into your heel at, with a grocery cart or something like that at the yeah. supermarket and it triggers this defensive response and and you, you might not even realize they bumped into you a little bit. You might not even realize that it happened happened and it just triggers this whole cascade of memories of a grenade blowing up next to you and 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 what have you and and so there's there's all of these different weighting systems Mm -hmm. within memory let me and i'm sorry that we're matt we're getting close to the end i feel like we haven't even specifically talked about your work you gave me (laughs) you can you can edit out a lot of the junk oh come on junk this is wonderful this is exactly how the podcast is supposed to be but now at the end i'm like we should really talk about what you actually do um but this is i I can always have you on again sometime um i this popped into my head i want to know this and mostly because i think you're probably going to dismiss this idea but it's something that i uh and and then i can stop thinking about it deja vu Hmm. my feeling is with deja vu is maybe what's happening some of the times you're walking down the sidewalk you step on like a crack or something that makes your foot uh adjust in some like kind of unusual specific manner and you're you're not consciously aware that this happened and your brain accesses whatever region to like remember how uh, trigger a past event of like how you need to move your foot in this specific way to adjust for this and then that is um then associated with these other aspects of of uh of other memories at that time and then your consciousness tell just gives you this sense of like oh i've done this before like why why have i been here before and then it feels like this creepy odd deja vu sense yeah but the actual like what actually happened was just some trivial non-conscious process do you think something like that is maybe happening i think maybe i think that like uh i mean so I'll be, I kind of went into my head when you started talking about deja vu because it was reminding me of, of this really this unfortunately isn't well it's related to some stuff we've done but it's actually uh, different researchers Stefan Kohler in London Ontario did this 
really cool study where he looked at, uh, you know, uh, epilepsy is an interesting disorder because you get these random discharges of electrical activity in the brain. And um, in many cases, it's in the temporal lobes in areas of the brain that we think are important for memory. And so Wilder Penfield had done these studies back when, you know, he was doing neurosurgery where he would electrically stimulate these areas. And people would have these experiences of deja vu or sometimes full recollections of past events. And so Stefan was looking at epilepsy patients. And one of the things he was interested in is there's a subgroup of patients who frequently have this experience of deja vu. Like they just feel like repeatedly it's around the time of the seizure. They have this feeling like I've been here before. And so what's interesting about that state is, is that there's something memory related about it. And they've got this disorder where there's random electrical discharges in the brain. And so what he did is he studied patients who had this deja vu and ones that didn't. And let's say if I show you a bunch of faces, right? And then later on, or you go to a party and you meet a bunch of people. Then the next day you go to a party and some of the same people are there. Like, let's say you're at some awards show that lasts several nights. And so this might be a plausible situation, you know? So some of these people will immediately seem familiar to you and some people won't. And that happens pretty quickly. Now you may later, it may take you a while to remember their names or where and when you previously saw them, but that feeling of kind of like, I've seen this person before hits you pretty quickly. Right. Um, if it hits you at all, mm-hmm. I, as I'm getting older, it happens less and less. <laughs> but uh, what was interesting is, is that patients with de- the deja vu um, who experienced that with their seizures would have the feeling of familiarity, but it was completely unrelated to the uh, things that they had studied and things versus things they hadn't studied. So that feeling that you get is typically in a healthy person related to memory, but it's some kind of a brain signal that happens that is, you know, can be kind of completely hijacked in cases like epilepsy and stuff. Mm. And we don't know, though, why it happens, but we do know there are, you know, neural circuits that seem to really grab on to whether something is, you know, new or something is old. And there's even a professor that I know, Rebecca Burwell at Brown, who did these cool studies where she inserted electrodes into the same area of the brain that Stefan was studying. It's called the perirhinal cortex. And when uh, she stimulated it at one frequency, you could put an object that basically a mouse had never seen before, and it would treat it like it was old and familiar and didn't really care about it. Or you could put an object that was completely new uh, I'm sorry, completely old and stimulated a different frequency and the animal would explore it just like it was a new object that it had never seen before. Mm. So the brain seems to really want to give you this information about things that are new, you know, and separate it out from things that are familiar. And even, you know, if you think about it, like uh, babies will look at things they've never seen before more than, you know, things they have seen before, right? And it's, it goes back in some sense to our... Um, uh, what we were talking about with this, uh, um, you know, curiosity too, is that you get this feeling like something isn't right. There's some gap that I have in things that I know. And you can think of novelty like that too. That There's something that pops up that's like, oh, that's unexpected. Let me figure this out and explore it. Now, deja vu is the flip side of that, right? Where you feel like you're retrieving maybe, I don't know exactly how it works. It's kind of an underexplored phenomenon, but it's probably like you do get some kind of a partial reactivation of something and then that gives you this itch to figure out well what was it why in the world do i feel like 
I've been here before. You know, many people report deja vu more with places than with people. And my guess would be those are different phenomena. But in all those cases, I think it's similar to what you're talking about, if I remember that, like, basically you get kind of some kind of a partial reactivation of a memory, but it gets blown up before it can kind of, you can consciously put it together. You see some tree that's like identical to some unusual tree that you noticed and spent a lot of time like admiring or looking at 10 years ago that you just have completely forgotten. Then you see a tree that's exactly like that. You're not even consciously aware that you saw it and it's triggering some uh, familiarity. That's right. That's right. Yeah. It triggers this kind of sense of being, you know, in a particular place and time. Mm. And so, you know, you can get this with people, you can kind of go, I've seen this person before, or you can get it with places, right? That's kind of like, I've been here before. Mm -hmm. And uh, one of the interesting things you mentioned PTSD is, is that feeling of having been there before. It's like, typically, you'd want to general have that feeling in places that you have been before, right? And one of the things that we think is going on in PTSD is that there's this overgeneralization of these mental representations of context, you know? So in other words, it's like they're in a place that shouldn't give you that feeling of having been there before, but it brings back that context and all the stuff that came with it. And that's how, and then that builds on the trauma because the trauma comes back in a new context and then a new context again. Mm. And so if you have kind of, for whatever reason, so chronic stress does this is that it's like, you know, we're studying a little bit on stress and memory and, if right after this, let's say, you get really stressed out about something, you realize that you're totally behind, or you're gonna, uh, you realize that you're gonna be stuck in, you're gonna be stuck in traffic for hours on Highway 80, which you probably will be. <laughs> so, uh, you know, that kind of stress can often enhance memory for things that happen right before the stressful experience, for instance, right? And that transient stress can kind of stimulate the hippocampus. But chronic stress, which is an area of the brain that we think is important for episodic memory, but chronic stress is really bad for the hippocampus. And people, I don't know if you've, t you said you've talked to Robert Sapolsky. I mean, he's oh, famous my, for studying this one stuff. One of my favorites. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's studied this stuff for a long time. And But chronic stress is very bad for your hippocampus. And mm. as you can, if the hippocampus is involved in organizing memories according to where and when they happen, and you start to degrade the functions of the hippocampus, well, now things that happen at different times and places start uh, to get glommed together and you start to reactivate memories when they shouldn't be reactivated, you know, and that's not necessarily deja vu, but it's definitely sending you back in time to a particular experience that pulls up all of this associated stuff. Right. Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of the, the thing that's very difficult about, uh, um, about traumatic experiences is that it kind of like it sticks to you because like if you overgeneralize it then you're in a completely new situation but that old stuff comes back right mm. and so and you know it may be you know not everybody who experiences a traumatic event develops ptsd and there may be individual differences in the degree to which people you know generalize these contexts so we don't know that but i think that's i think that's been studied actually i i think that they're uh Gosh, I wish I had another hour with you right now. We need <laughs> <laughs> uh, we need to wrap up. We should do do a part two sometime because we didn't. 
didn't even get to your stuff. Um, <laughs> this is, if you're up for it, I would love to have you. Yeah, yeah, again. no problem. Um, I mean, this has just been such a great conversation. Yeah, it's my my understanding, and this is related to memory that that um, that there there has been a fairly big difference noticed in the people who under, underwent the same trauma and say a war. We're right next to each other in the bunker, and sure, there's probably individual genetic, environmental influences right from day one but oh yeah but but then um one one big thing that they've noticed in the reaction afterwards is is the people that go home talk about it write a book about it whatever process it better typically than the people that keep it to themselves and try to repress that event mm-hmm. seem, seem to be the ones that that, that suffer more suffer the most yeah so. i mean I, I think that's a really i i don't know much about that particular topic but i do can say that I mean, one of the things that as neuroscientists, we often kind of talk as if everyone's the same, but obviously we know they're not, right? And so one of the things in our studies of stress that we found is the degree to which cortisol is a hormone that's released during stressful events. And the degree to which somebody has the experience of cortisol being reactivated during um you know, something like you stick your hand in a bowl of ice water, which is kind of a way we can manipulate stress. And it some people have a small jump in court. Some people have a gigantic jump in court. And those individual differences predict how memory will be affected, too. So there are, you know, differences in the stress response. There's differences in the way people process it. Um, and all of those things kind of determine in some way how it is that you'll later on remember these experiences. Hmm. Yeah, endlessly fascinating. Just just right now, the people, you know, the people listening to this uh how much of this is getting uh, their re- remembering is there's going to be a zillion individual differences some people are listening like in a bathtub right now listening some people are uh, driving and having to concentrate on the road and missing m- bits and pieces some people are deeply interested in in memory and this is all fascinating some people already know some of this stuff and that just uh, context is is so important in all of the and it's it's just uh it's endlessly uh, fascinating memory is such an interesting topic and by the time you get a decent sense of how it works you start losing your own (laughs) yeah yeah yep that's right (laughs) so uh well let's have you on again sometime because this is i i could be talking for another hour easily um so but but i appreciate you uh making time and and sitting down with me for for a bit and i'll let you know next time i'm in town um uh charan raganath yeah <laughs> i'm sorry that your name makes me a little nervous but i nailed it um and yeah i appreciate you finding the time to meet with me and thank you listeners for being such wonderful curious people and uh giving me hope for humanity that people are interested in stuff like this uh it makes me uh real hopeful and optimistic about things so thank you listeners and we'll talk with you next week Next week on the podcast is part two. So I hope you enjoyed this one because next week it's going to be an even more in-depth conversation 
built on the conversation you just heard. I thought this was absolutely terrific. I'm sure you agree. And I have an exciting announcement that I should be making in June. Not to... Uh, whatever. It's not even confirmed. I shouldn't even mention it. But I'm trying to line up more partnerships that make sense with the scope of the show. And I have a lead on kind of an education-based company that I may be working with, which will be a really good fit for the show. Uh, in addition to Libro.fm, offer code here we are to get three months for the price of one. And that $14.99 goes to me after that everything gets split with your local bookstore you get it you're actually downloading the books from your local bookstore you're supporting your indie bookstore so it's a really cool great thing same catalog as every other audiobook company out there same price and everything but you're able to support your local bookstore and i've already worked on lining up some bookstore shows which will be a perfect venue for stand-up science so uh it's a way that you can support me while um taking in something uh wonderful like an audiobook of your choice i'm trying to establish more partnerships like this uh that are in line with the scope and vision of the show uh stitcher has been a really good one because with the stitcher premium membership you are able to go on and get the show ad free and you can also go and get the full catalog from the show they have exclusive access to the full catalog of the here we are podcast any episode older than six months is only available on there and i'm uh, i'm trying guys i i you know through i never wanted ads on the show necessarily in the first place and then i ran out of funds to support this podcast and i've had to make some compromise to keep the lights on at old shane moss enterprises and so uh trying to get it figured out to just be supporting and working with companies that really fit the scope of the show i'm not a hundred percent there just yet i probably shouldn't even be saying like that but i am but libro.fm is a big step in the right direction for me and i think i have another big player in the uh kind of education business getting lined up for june so really looking forward to that and another great partner myco meditations i think we're going to do a comfort retreat it's like another 500 dollars for the retreat but it is well worth it i've experienced all of the other retreats and the comfort retreat was by far um, the best one and we're looking at it's going to be january 18th through 25th of 2020 uh now is the time to start thinking about that write me if you are interested it's uh you get three psilocybin mushroom um, trips included with the it's an all-inclusive package all the food all the accommodations everything other than the flight uh, and it is an awesome way to meet new like-minded people you know people that listen to this podcast and it's all people going there to have a good time to better themselves to have a new experience and it's uh, better than any vacation that you'll <laughs> you'll ever take you could take a trip to a caribbean paradise on your own um and it would be the same price uh or maybe more and it wouldn't be 
with me and a bunch of other awesome people and it wouldn't include mushrooms and professional trip sitters and that sort of thing. I don't know why why you would do that, but I guess you could go to like Margaritaville or, or wherever. But uh, anyway, if, if you wanna have a untraditional vacation, a, a trip to a Caribbean paradise and a trip inside of your mind at the same time, and also get to make some new friends along the way that keep up with one another. And I uh, always see these guys in group chats and meeting up with people outside of this. It's a great way to take a vacation, if you ask me. And so yeah, I, I hope you'll, uh, you'll look into that and write me if you have any questions. And those of you that listen all the way to the end, you are, of course, my favorites.